You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, the 602 Club, where we have all the time to podcast. I am one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm so excited to have back with me the... I'm sorry, what? Double O what? Nine. Oh, nine. Nine. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, uh, well, yeah. it's so good to see you, Christy. Um, I, I'm glad, um, you <laughs> yeah, know. You too. Double O nine. That makes me feel so much better. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I'm really excited, uh, and unfortunately, if anybody's listening to this episode and you're thinking, oh, well, I know who's coming on next, and you're thinking it's going to be John Champion, John is actually out of town as we're recording this, so he was not able to be with us. So, we got another John, and I think that you might know this John very well, John Mills. Yes, and because of the virtue of my last name, if Christy is 009, I shall be M. So, there you go. Mm. I have designated myself Excellent. as M. Yes. Excellent. Well, Which I actually, um, I have yeah. a very funny story about M to share later in the show. Very funny one. I think, well, Excellent. it's, it's Ooh, not okay. like slap your knee funny. I just thought it was cute. So, well, way to set expectations for the show. Uh, but um, we are finally talking about No Time to Die tonight uh, or whenever you're listening to this because it has finally been released to the world and we're really excited to finally get to this uh, Daniel Craig's last outing as James Bond. You could find us, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. We would really appreciate your subscribe. We would really appreciate you uh, giving us a star rating and review over an Apple podcast. Apple people find the show. Uh, of course, you could find us on. We would love your follow on Twitter at the 602 Club and on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. Uh, you could also find us online at Trek FM or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. Of course, you can always join the listeners only discussion group where we can uh, talk to listeners from all over the world on Facebook. Um, and it's called the Babel Conference. You can find that there. And if you want to send us an email, you can go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show and then choose the 602 Club. And that email comes to Christy and I. And we really want to say a huge thank you. We've got some associate producers here through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah. Thank you guys for your support of the network. And if you do want to make sure that everything that's coming to you from the 602 Club, as well as TFM, keeps coming to you, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of our team. Every little bit helps. We really appreciate it. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Okay. Before we get like into the nitty gritty of the movie, one of the interesting things was, and, and John, I, I, you know, I, I, we talked about this when it had happened, and but they hired Danny Boyle to direct Bond. Uh, and first, I, I, I just wanted to ask you both how you felt about that. Did you have any strong feelings about that? Did you think that he would do a good job when you heard that he had been hired to direct the twenty fifth James Bond movie? I. I... I mean, from my perspective, any, you know, if the producers think he deserves a shot or she deserves a shot, whoever they're going to get to direct, then they deserve a shot. And so I'm not excited, per se, for a Danny Boyle movie. 
uh, in the James Bond universe because it's sort of like, okay, how what does that work like? What does that look like? But, you know, at the very least, I know I'm going to go see it and it'll be something a little different and interesting. Spice things up, as it were. Uh, so, you know, when it, when it was Danny Boyle's film, it was like, okay, well, sure. Let's let's see. what. So I, I, I guess that's a boring answer, but I wasn't excited and I wasn't depressed. It was just like, oh, okay, well, let's see what happens. Yeah, I would say that's initially kind of what I thought of hearing Danny Boyle directing this as well of just, okay, I've heard, you know, he did Slumdog Millionaire, for example, um, but don't really know a lot about him, uh, about him otherwise. So um, we'll see. I was initially hoping maybe they would bring back Sam Mendes because Skyfall to me was like the epitome of the best of a lot of Bond movies, um, but definitely the best of the Daniel Craig movies until I had seen this. So we'll see what I think of that compared to this. But um, yeah, I uh, so I was kind of sad that Mendez wasn't coming back because I loved his work on Skyfall so much, but interested to see how Boyle would handle it. And then, of course, he did not end up handling it. We got someone completely different. Yeah, no, I mean, it is really interesting. I remember having conversations with people about this and... Just being like, I just, I don't see Danny Boyle's Bond, you know, like I I don't see how he makes this movie because his movies don't really seem to fit within what you would want, really, I I would think as a fan and just to kind of even expect it all from a James Bond movie. And yeah, you know, Christy, I was definitely sad that Sam Mendes, you know, definitely felt like after Spectre he was done and he didn't want to come back. Um, but, uh, you know, when they decided to hair, uh, hire uh, Kerry Joji Fukunaga, um, I thought, I mean, he's done some good work. And I'd be, I mean, you know, I would love to see what he, he's got up his sleeve. Um, you know, he, he kind of even just, to me, had the look of... Um, I really think of a, he, he kind of had this feeling of Guy Hamilton to me, who had directed a lot of the James Bond the early movies and was kind of responsible for, you know, a lot of the mannerisms, you know, um, really influential with the look, you know, uh, Fukunaga just kind of has that style. Uh, and he seemed to be somebody who has like his own sense of style just personally. And, and so that's immediately what I thought of um, when. Uh, I saw that they hired him, and I thought it was interesting too, but um, I was reading in the making of book today, you know, they really wanted this to feel like a classic Bond with a contemporary edge. So I don't know if I can ask this question without giving away too much from either of you, but do you feel like then with going with him as the director that they ended up getting that when you think of No Time to Die? I I mean, I think there were certain parts that I thought were absolutely felt like absolute classic bond sequences and just absolutely felt right. They, that um, I think of the, you know, the whole Cuba thing. I thought the whole Cuba thing was exactly that. I thought it was classic bond with a, a modern twist to it, a modern flavor. It had the sense of, it had the sense of lightness and fun that marked all of my favorite bonds because even even though bond was always dealing with the idea of the world ending if he failed his mission there was always that sense of the pressure not getting him and him always being cool you know just sort of rolling with it and just figuring out 
how how it's going to work as it goes along. Uh, there were a lot of cute moments, like you know, you know, downing the drink, you know, in between parts of the gun battle. That that's adorable. Like that's mm-hmm. really fun sort of stuff. I thought that the uh, the car chase definitely felt like a classic Bond maneuver. Um, so yeah, I mean, th- there were definitely parts that I thought felt very Bond. But then you know, t- if you want to hit the if you want to hit the fast forward button, it's undeniable that, for instance, like the uh, the the final staircase gunfight sequence, really, it feels like a much more modern film. There's a lot more of that realistic stunts, bouncing back and forth, you know, elaborate set piece sort of feel to it that we've come to expect with action movies. So that gets that gets transplanted in rather successfully, I think. Yeah, I I think that you really see. Um they wanted to take this movie and make sure they paid homage to all of the Bond films before. I think that they especially felt the weight of this being Craig's final Bond movie as well and feeling the need to kind of wrap that in a nice bow. Um, And so you did need to make sure that you treated the past Bonds with respect, I think. And I, I felt like they did that really well with the feel of this movie and especially with, you know, the, the iconic things that they threw in to um, refer to past bonds. I love that they have this scene of him actually within the movie um, jumping into a tunnel and then turning and shooting. Um, and I, I love the mess- messages in the dialogue of uh, referencing some of the other movie titles even. You know, when Felix says it'd be nice to have you back on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, both of you have just pulled out really great points uh, of where this movie, I think, is successful in the sense of what they were going for. You know, if their their goal was to make a classic Bond feel with a contemporary edge, I think that that's definitely what we get here. I, I, and especially for Craig, I think this is the closest merging of old school bond with his bond uh you know mm-hmm. just in the scale of the film um the the villain of the film you know the end sequence of the film where you know the villain is their lair you know that kind of stuff um john you referencing i think the cuba scene specifically um i think of uh, actually all of the car chase sequences feel like bond movies except for the fact that you know when they're in norway that car chase sequences is much more modern and is something we hadn't seen before in bond so it's a it's a new take on something that's been done a bunch of times in bond which is a car chase sequence um and Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean i feel like they did a really good job of trying to merge all of those things and christy something you brought up that i thought was interesting here uh with our outline for the movie is you asked about this idea of were they getting rid of some old tropes? And, you know, you kind of mentioned here, there's really no sacrificial lamb character that you see in a lot of Bond movies. Um, There's no really big, you know, love scene. Um, Kind of hearkening. Other than that one, you know, with him and Madeline at the beginning. Um, But, I mean, hearkening back in many ways to the old school Bonds where, like, there's the before and the after. There's no, you know, like Pierce Brosnan where they're, let's not talk about, die another day so um but (laughs) did you is that something that um that you guys felt like that this was also trying to maybe 
continually take Bond, I guess, into the 21st century, as they might say? Yeah. So for me, I I was really glad that some of the things we've talked about that we were uncomfortable with with past Bond films um, were not in this one. In particular, I'm thinking of like, although Connery is always my favorite Bond, the scene, I think it was maybe way back in Dr. No or something where he is strangling a girl with her own bikini top was just really painful to see on camera. Um, and so some things like that, I think you're justified in getting rid of and not treating your characters like that in a movie. Um, but I do like that they still kept the general Bond feel of that he's a ladies man kind of guy or that even in this situation where he has this more committed relationship with someone, he's still, you know, flirtatious and mysterious and has a good time whenever he's hanging out with women, whether that's Paloma or Madeline. Um, But I'm glad that they got rid of the more like violent stuff um, toward women or, or, you know, the sacrificial lamb character, like we've said before. I think that, it does reflect a more modern sensibility in the fact that there's not this sense of obligation to have a, uh, you know, quasi soft core sex scene like you do through the nineties. Uh, and so they're, you know, the audience doesn't want that anymore. So they don't give it to the audience anymore. And okay. You're right. Rec- like it's just at, at its core, it's a recognition of the audience doesn't want that anymore. Okay. So you changed it. And so, yes, I, d- I do see evidence of that. I see that, uh, you know, some of the stuff is a little clunkier at parts, I, I, I think, where they are, there's nothing about this, absolutely nothing about this that I think should even give fuel to, you know, the, the typical sort of reaction you can get with trying to modernize a character where people say, oh, you're, you have an agenda or something like that. Everything feels very organic in this, but there's still parts of it that are clunky in the sense that they're trying to get rid of the bond works by himself. And so he has a team working. There's more emphasis on the team. There's more emphasis on other people being as competent as bond out there. But uh, the, Mm -hmm. like the clunkiness that I refer to is just the fact that they use too many characters to make the point. I think that the attempts at modernizing could have really benefited from narrowing some of the focus of the movie and, and reining some of the character scope in so that we could get that a little more clearly and a little more quickly on the way uh, to the conclusion. I think they do a good job of getting rid of the old that's not needed. and um, But I do feel like this this also does a great job of you know, something, Krista, you had mentioned before, which is being an homage to everything that's come before as well and doing that in in a in a good way for the most part. Um, John, I think specifically what you were talking about with the characters, there's something I, I really want to get into a little bit later on that, and we will for sure, because I, I thought um, the way that they made the point was much different than I thought they were going to. So, um, but... What I was interested in, um, and I, I promise we will get to that, but um, I, this movie starts off with Madeline's history, which is something that no Bond movie has ever done, which is to kind of give us this um, opening sequence that doesn't have anything to do with Bond, which is really interesting. And so 
Uh, and obviously, you know, we had kind of heard some of the story slightly in Spectre when they're on the train and she, she gives up some of the story. And um, how did you guys like this as kind of our setup for the entire rest of the movie, really? So I actually hadn't seen Spectre in a while. And for me, it was nice getting kind of a refresher on that as well. Um, but I think that this helped um, start the movie in a good way, even though it didn't initially have Bond, the way it was shot, the way that I always love being brought into a story rather than um, started from the beginning with a, you know, disclaimer or a expositional screen cap kind of thing. Um, so the way it began was really interesting to me. And then even though it didn't have Bond, like I said, I think that it was captivating because it was so measured, I think is the best way I could describe it. Um, everything they're showing you and you're hearing has purpose. And it felt like it took a beat to just be the creepy scene that it was. Um, and then jump into Madeline present day with Bond and uh, sort of that emphasis on having so many secrets and stuff and that, you know, there's all of this that happened to her that's going on on the inside that Bond doesn't know about. So I, I liked it. I thought it was a really great way to start it. I mean, I, I think it's a, I, I thought it was a good way to start it. I thought it was interesting and different and interesting and different is good. And I, I do agree that it was a well-constructed scene. Uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll be completely honest though, that it, it can be a little disorienting because I have always enjoyed that opening action sequence. I've always gotten such a kick out of mm -hmm. it. And I, again, I, I understand there's, this serves the story better to open this way. Uh, you know, I understand that argument, but there's also a, there's, there's also a, a regret that I have because that opening action sequence always established who the story was about, that it's about Bond, that it's, you know, hey, welcome back. Yeah. Here's our boy. He's up to no good again, and he's doing his thing. Now, obviously, the character's in a different spot from the previous film. And so I think that what it really reflects is that this is a series that in the Craig years, at least since... I, I mean, probably since the beginning, I would say it's not an anthology anymore with Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig is a packaged oh, yeah, storyline. And so, yeah, in that sense, okay, opening like this makes more sense for this type of, uh, you know, story, the way that you're going to approach it. But, you know, I, you know, I'll cop to it. I, I really usually love the big opening action mm -hmm. sequences and so i was a little i uh, you know i disappointed is too strong a word but it, it was like oh well okay yeah all right i get it i get it but like it's it's sort of uh you know just it didn't get my blood pumping right away and so that's a different thing sure. as well for a bond movie i'm used to my blood pumping right off in that mm -hmm. first five minutes as opposed to slowly taking its time to build and present something mm -hmm. yeah you're absolutely right. I mean, this movie does take its time to build uh, into its story. And, and part of it, I think, is the beginning. And I think you rightly put this. And I was talking to some friends after we saw the movie. And, you know, 
the way I think of Craig's run as Bond is the difference between Nolan's Batman films and the other Batman films. They're all loosely connected to one another. And then you get Nolan, it's its own thing, you know, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what Craig mm-hmm. is. You know, Craig is Bond and yet he doesn't have the connection to the other Bonds, really. Like they are telling a whole art story from Casino Royale here to No Time to Die. It's a full thing in, in, in the same way that, you know, I mean... Bruce Wayne in the Nolan Batmans gets an entire arc, you know, and once it's done, it's done, you know, and it's very similar to that. And so I really appreciated that they started off the story like this, too, because, Christy, many times we talk about this idea of, like, how you will just tell us something instead of showing us something. And, um, you know, obviously she had told part of this story in Spectre, but instead of just pulling that and then using that as the motivation, they actually go into detail here and really show you what happened to her and of course the connection that she then has with Safin and him rescuing her and this this weird connection that these all all these characters end up having to one another um, is, is kind of fascinating and so by giving us this opening sequence we are allowing the character of Madeline to grow um, and grow in, in who she will be um you know, even to James in that scene, you know, like to help set the sequence of the fact that does he know her, right? And 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 it helps build into that whole sequence. You know, she pulls out of the water. He's like, where did you go? And, you know, like he knows there's some secrets. He knows there isn't something, there's something she hasn't told him yet. And they're almost about to get to that point. And then, of course, you know, the whole thing blows up in his face, literally, um, when, you know, Blofeld, uh, makes his move there and blows up Vesper's uh, tomb. And so, but I, I, I thought that all of this just works really well into setting up the, the stage for, it, it's like the character motivations for our quote-unquote hero characters, I feel like really work um, for Bond and for mm-hmm. Madeline and the choices that they make throughout this movie. And I think that you're right, though, too, John, I understand the way that you felt as far as not having the Bond opening sequence we expect. So, you know, I mean, definitely like some of the the iconic ones I remember. I remember Roger Moore with the skiing opening and, you know, the parachute and everything being so cool. Yeah. But so it's like. I do miss that. And that's something that as a lifelong Bond fan, I love. I I guess I realized that this is like Matt saying to its own thing. And they're setting a tone for this being a much more serious, in-depth, emotional version of Bond. Yeah, I I think, though, that part of what the opening gets at as well is that it does it does take a little bit of time to get where it needs to go. And while I'm no fan of rushing things, I think that the, the film's runtime, you know, death by a million cuts, basically like a little, a little bit of trim here and there would have benefited uh, everything as a whole. And I think if you look at the beginning, do I know I haven't seen it more than once, but there's very much a sense of, they're probably in a box in terms of what they want to tell and, and, and stuff like that, but it feels a little too long 
to get to these points in the sense that I I want them to get there a little bit quicker, especially because that opening sequence is sort of like housekeeping from Spectre. It could go a little bit faster. You could trim just a little bit out of it and then trim just a little bit out of, you know, getting to Vesper's tomb. And then that that gives you more time to breathe later on in this story as opposed to that opening the entirety of it plays a little bit more like a uh, like a streaming series sort of thing uh, where it's like they're so intertwined and I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing I'm just saying that right there you can see that this is a movie that's going to indulge its runtime as opposed to be focused on economy of storytelling that makes sense yeah I think for me I've always enjoyed more of the indulgence. You know, I mean, my favorite Bond movie is Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which is one of the longer Bond movies anyway. Um, and its indulgence of time really, I think, works its benefit because of the relationship you get with, uh, you know, Bond and Tracy in that movie, obviously, being a huge part. And, and I, to me, I think I need this movie to have Madeline's history and then move to Matera Uh and that whole sequence so that I really feel the hurt and betrayal for both Bond and Madeline um, so that when he puts her on that train, it feels, it feels like, you know, I I feel it. Um, You know, these are Mm -hmm. two people who are literally trying their hardest to move past their lives and 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 to make a new uh, make a future together right you know and um to to let go of the past and move forward and things keep getting in their way and this you know this movie you know obviously it's blofeld that gets in their way again um and creates the sequence where he creates mistrust between them again and um they're they're not able to reconnect till later but i've you know, I feel that in, in later and it, and it helps those sequences, especially when Blofeld, I think explains what he did because I really saw the pain and the agony that it puts these characters through as they were just about to make a huge breakthrough in their relationship. And then it all goes to crap again. Um, and so I guess for me, like I, I really enjoyed the way that the movie begins and, Personally, I I just enjoyed the fact that the movie was going to take its time with all this stuff and it wasn't going to rush through things, Um, especially to me, if you want to have the emotional punch at the end where you're really feeling what they want you to feel at the very end of the movie, you know, Um, so I I feel Mm -hmm. like spending the time here made that punch like I turned to my wife. I had already seen it on Thursday. She turned to me and just looked at me like, I'm going to kill you for not telling me I was going to cry the whole movie. Um, and <laughs> so, you know, I like that. But that's exactly what they want. I, I went and saw it again the next day. And this lady next next to me is just like sobbing by the end of the film. Like, right. That's what you're looking for. So, And, and that's and that's fine because but but the thing is, on the balance sheet of the runtime, on the balance sheet of the edit. Right. 
if you're going to commit to taking that time to set all of that up, I'm not saying it's a bad, again, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but there are other choices you can make later sure, in the film too sure. to tighten things up and just oh, get, I can the, understand that, get yeah. there faster. You know, mm-hmm. like not yeah. because I'm impatient. I can sit through a long film with the best of them. One of my favorite films from the 1990s is Michael Mann's Heat. That, that one clocks in longer than three hours, I think. I, I saw that film uh, literally two days after I had my wisdom teeth extracted, and I stayed awake and captivated by that film the entire time because Michael Mann is an overlooked and underrated master filmmaker. But anyway, mm-hmm. so I don't shy away from the, lo- the long runtime. I'm just saying like, sure. if you stack it this much here, and there is a lot of good story and a lot of good character building in this portion what mm-hmm. do you have to remove from the scales later to, you know, to balance things out? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to, because he plays such an interesting role in this movie, I wanted to talk about Safin and, um, and him as a villain. And, you know, I, firstly, he he has that infantry conversation with with Bond where he says that, you know, they have a similar history. And when you think about it, and then Bond admits that that's the truth, you know, that they both, they were thrown into the fight before they were even ready, you know, before they'd even had a chance to grow up. Both of them lost their parents, right? And I just really thought that this was so interesting because it is this mirroring between the characters. And I, you know, regardless of, of you know, what ends up happening with <clears throat> Blofeld's parents you know taking uh bond in you know he has these other parental characters in his life that and then he has this family with mi6 you know and it just it was really interesting to see the way in which these two characters because bond even says we made different choices and it's absolutely true but it I, i to me it was also reflecting on the fact that yes bond's a killer for his government right he's an assassin but this bond specifically really has a code and that code has come from this family that surrounded him from you know um blofeld's family taking him to then this mi6 family and the way in which family makes a difference on how we turn out and i just was like was really fascinated about that idea and i to be honest it's the one place in the movie which i wish there had been even more like John, you were talking about ways that you can like, you know, add some runtime somewhere or trim here, you know, like those kind of things. Like this is a part of the story, which I I would have wanted even a little bit more focus on. Uh, I I definitely, I liked uh, Rami Malek as the character. I I thought that it was an interesting villain, uh, but I do think that one of the, one of the film's greatest sins is that we don't get enough time with him. I I do know that the I don't know in great detail. I know that the production history of the film there were some reshoots, there were some reworks and I think that his character probably suffered in those reshoots and reworks and got reduced uh as they shuffled some other story points around. I would have liked to spend more time with him just because I found him so much more interesting. Now that comment in and of itself from coming from a Bond fan is strange because usually the villain doesn't show up until the end and then they have a, you know, a long, um, 
you know, monologue about what they're going to do. I mean, we, you know, we even we don't even meet Donald Pleasance's uh, Blofeld, like the the iconic sure. version of that character until very nearly the end of the movie. Um, and so it's, I guess, one of those things where I just wish there was more of the character so that there would have been more time for him and Bond to spar intellectually so that 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 intellectual confrontation at the end has been built to as opposed to just quickly there um so that you know i i, I do I, I it's a compliment of sorts to say that i, I wish we'd gotten more time with him mm-hmm. because yeah. he was a yeah. really interesting character although i i, I do want to ask a question I, i'm sorry christy to jump in like that I seem to recall in early press stuff that his character was some sort of deranged eco-terrorist. And that motivation didn't really come across in this for me. And I, I took my my middle child with me and I asked her what was his motivation. And she, she was like, uh, kill people. So like, I, I think possibly that's our biggest sign that something got shuffled around in the reshoots and everything is the fact that his motivation gets muddied, uh, you know, as it's going along and it's just, eh, he just wants to kill a bunch of people. And it's like, oh, okay. Usually there's some sort of like megalomaniacal brilliance, some sort of really twisted logic behind the villain's reasoning. And maybe that's why I'm saying I, I wish I'd spent more time with the character because I just tease that out a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You're right. You don't get enough of an explanation that really ties together his past with his plan now. It seems like there's several different things motivating him and that it's not really clear how they're all connected. You know, it we get over and over that they say that Mr. White killed his entire family. So, of course, he wants vengeance. And then now that he's got this plan that has to do with the nanobots that are DNA driven. But then he also has the poison garden and he talks about that this was his father's masterpiece and you know about how plants can be both beautiful and um, deadly and you don't know until you touch them and then it seems like they were going that direction possibly of bioterrorism um, or of you know disease being used as a weapon and stuff but not really having something that connects to why he wants that as his plan for vengeance does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Al- so although it, I will say, yeah. as you call out uh, the the whole, you know, plants being deadly thing, I find it very interesting that we're talking about this movie right after talking about uh, Poison Ivy and Batman and Robin. Oh, so geez. there right. you go. Yeah. You so go. similar. So similar. <laughs> um, Women and plants are very yes. similar. Oh, okay. my. <laughs> so I um, think the thing that, that really stuck with me about him as a villain was the fact that that Mr. White comes to kill his family. His family works for Spectre, right? They're this evil family, right? At least his dad is. But, and he seems to have been raised, you know, with those values, you know, of, of Spectre, right? He, Blofeld's henchman calls Madeline a child of Spectre to throw Bond off at the beginning of the film. But Safin truly is a child of Spectre. And that child 
whose parents were killed by him does exactly what Spectre would do, right? He longs to take Spectre out, and then he wants to continue their mission, but through his image and for his benefit. And so, like, I saw this as, like, for him, that he's a true believer in the mission that Spectre has, but they betrayed his family. So he'll take that mission and he'll make it his own, but he's also going to kill them in the process, right? And so to me, it, it it did all end up working together better than I think it has for some people. And part of that is because he does kind of become the classic Spectre megalomaniacal where he talks about the idea that some are meant to rule and the rest to follow. You know, I mean, he he's... A classic, like, Drax-level, Blofeld-level villain. Uh, you know, he's even doing some of the same... I mean, he's doing the same type of biological type of warfare that uh, you saw in, on Her Majesty's Secret Service with Blofeld and Drax from Moonraker. I mean, if you put those two together, and he has a layer that feels like it comes straight out of You Only Live Twice and or Dr. No. So, you know, I... I like he's a he's a conglomeration of a lot of those type of villains and I absolutely agree with you though John I do wish that we had spent just a little bit more time with him so we could have fleshed out all of that just a little bit more um because I think another really important thing with Safin is is that you have this juxtaposition not just between him and Bond but between him and M right like M creates this weapon to save the world not thinking mm-hmm. necessarily about how badly it could be misconstrued. Like, he obviously is taking all the precautions he can, right? Um, but still, to create this weapon in the first place seems like just a bad idea from what how easily it's misconstrued and then, like, taken and weaponized to, to you know, try and destroy the entire world with. I, I just want to say that uh, if they wrote this film... Um, about a level four bioengineering virus facility in the center of a major city uh, with a virus that gets out and poses a threat to the entire world before 2020. I think that somebody needs the crystal ball uh, prophecy prize uh, <laughs> yes. for putting this script together. Um, and, like it was, it was one of those things where I saw the building and I was like, oh yeah, that's not good. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, funny story about M that I tease at the beginning. See, you kids listen this far in and you get the story. What's great is I took middle child. I bribed her with uh, candy, um, which sounds weird. But <laughs> when it's your kid and you're like, hey, I'll get you candy and popcorn. If you go to the movies with me, that's you know, that's OK. Um, and so, you know, every so often I would ask, I was like, does this make sense to you? Like, just get the kids pulse on on what's going on. And yeah, you know, she, she was with it the whole time. She's a bright kid. And, uh, at one point in his first scene, while, uh, Ray finds as M is talking, cause she's a Harry Potter fan. I said, lean over and I whispered to her, I go, you know, that's Voldemort. Who? That guy, that guy right there. You know, when he's on screen, I'm like, that's Voldemort. She goes, no, it's not. Like, so I, I thought it was very cute that like, I can look at Ray finds and I'm like, yeah, that's Voldemort. And she looks at it. She's like, Wait, no, he's got a nose and everything, you know, and it's yeah. like it, it throws her off like that. <laughs> That's not the yeah. same guy. Um, That's great. But yeah, I, I thought, uh, you know, bravo to them for having an extremely topical sort of 
mm-hmm. discussion about how government bureaucracy can create things that are awful, especially when you have compartmentalized uh, agencies that don't talk to each other and don't coordinate well, and there's no check and balance about uh, who is authorizing what in the uh, shadowy mm-hmm. uh, halls of power. So, um, yeah, really big time bravo to them for that one. Seriously, like it was, you know, all right, a topical yeah. bond. Excellent. Well, well done. And on top of that, when you look at what, you know, I love that conversation that M and Bond have because M's like, I believe and I've spent my entire life defending the principles of, of this. And he's just, he kind of looks around where they are right next to the Tims and he's like, this, you know, like this is what I'm trying to protect. And whereas mm-hmm. Safin's character is saying, you know, no, some people are are meant to rule and others to follow. You know, everybody just wants to basically be told what to do other than the few basically gods among us kind of thing. And, and this whole idea of like, and, and I, I mean, I couldn't think of a more topical discussion either, John, of like, talk about like some people saying, no, I'm, I'm protecting freedom. And, and like, because Bond even kind of makes fun of it. Oh, they're trying to take away freedom, blah, 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 you know, all the usual. And but but that that they're all the same. Right. They're all people who believe themselves to be the ones that should be leading and everybody else should follow. And and whereas Bond is protecting the idea of liberal democracy, you all should be able to make the choices that you long to make in your own life. And I'm going to make sure that you have that ability because something somebody doesn't take that away from you. That's why we I think we love this character is because he's the one who stands between us and the precipice of destruction, you know, and megalomaniacal maniacs who want to take over the world and and just either destroy half of it or turn it into something in their own image because they know better well i i think that's something that is more interesting i i think it's more interestingly explored here than it was in specter even is the idea that that um you know the bad guy in this is actually able to use the government's own mechanisms against them to create exactly what he wants this is not if you really think about it and they do this inspector as well i acknowledge that but i think it's more interesting here the fact that what is at play here is a is again just the structures of power being used against the very people who are who set them up because they don't realize the monster that they've created, that they've authorized, that they have extended through time by setting these powers up for themselves to begin with. Like M may M might be sitting there trying to defend quote unquote this, but it's because of the system that he helped put in place that it's all in danger. Yeah, that's true. Because that's yeah, exactly great. what can be manipulated yep. by somebody who wants to destroy that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's crazy how the the argument for Frankenstein's monster has become such a relevant thing over and over and yeah. over again about you created this thing that you thought would be used for good and someone else took it and twisted it into something evil. You have to either ask yourself why you're creating it in the first place and maybe not do it or create it and do your best to protect it from getting into the wrong hands. But uh, you know, either way, it's like all of these things could be called 
playing God. Mm. And I think that that was very apt that Bond brought that up. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent, Christy. That was that was great. Um, well, and and just you know, comparing him to all the petty little men who have tried to rule the world, you know, and that's how we think of mm-hmm. them. They're petty, petty, tiny little men who thought that they knew best for the entire world, and you know, we laugh at them. But then I think the thing that this movie makes me think is that. Do we recognize that enough when it's happening in front of us now? That's the question. And I think this movie helps make that relevant. So, um, and can we just talk? I really enjoyed that personally that the bad guy had a sweet lair. I mean, that was tight. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, it was awesome. Okay. Look, I, I, I agree the sweet lair is good. And he had a good sense of personal style. I like the way he dressed. It was interesting. Yeah, it's kimono. <laughs> but, but that sort of like hyper brutalist architecture. Come on, man. I, I know it's a, an old missile silo and everything like that. But if you're going to have that much style, you know, at least, yeah, I, I don't know. Use a little color. Maybe some extra lighting. Well, he and was stuff adding like color, like with the Monets and stuff like that. I mean, he yeah, just I had guess. gotten finished decorating. You I know? guess it, it just. Yeah, it just he was exactly. just moving in, John. <laughs> uh, okay, fair enough, but it just it seemed so drab. You would think that somebody with <laughs> a global point of view would have would have thought ahead. So I don't know. I got in a rug yeah, or know, something, or, or maybe like, the employees' uniforms a little. You know, why just have the red? Red's a drab. Like red. Ooh, yeah, bad, death, yeah, danger, yeah, like some yeah. blue, maybe yellow, you know, something like that. A little brightness. I like it. I don't know. I like it. Could that be the name for this episode? Bad, death, <laughs> danger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, I want to give a shout out to um, Rami Malik myself as well. I loved him um, in Bohemian Rhapsody and thought, man, he needs to get all the awesome roles because the man could become a character and dang like was so freaking moving and he did that well with this i definitely think that he should have gotten more time um and that we needed a little bit more fleshed out with um Safin as a character um and i liked his garden i thought it was so cool that that ended up uh the pool opened up to being the blast doors um and i i thought that it was very eerie him you know grabbing Matilde from Madeline and walking through the garden of things that she's not supposed to touch, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I thought he was a cool villain and that it was a really interesting way to go with what the threat would be. Because, I mean, who would have thought we, we've all thought that bioterrorism is definitely possible. Um, but in this way was very different. You know, having something that you find out could target specifically your entire genetic pool is so creepy. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and and can I, I? I think one of the things that's so interesting about it is how it doesn't really feel all that implausible these days. Like, I, even all the gadgets that they use mm-hmm. in this movie just don't feel all that implausible because of where we are technologically. So that was kind of one of the things that I I enjoyed about the film is that I just didn't really, it 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 doesn't feel that off. Yes, there's some of the stuff that's kind of Bondy and you know, super, uh, like super crazy, but at the same time it's like oh I could see how we could get there, you know, and and I think that was the yeah. the thing that, you know, the the old Bond movies, you know, specifically 
you would have things and you're like, oh, that's ridiculous. But now it just like everything feels possible for the most part. And and so I, you know, I, I enjoyed that. Okay. We have to talk about the new 007 and the fact that um, Nomi plays the new 007 in the film. Um, after Bond's gone and is retired, um, they give somebody uh, the number 007. And so I wanted to ask you, one, what you thought of the character uh, and the portrayal and, and just the idea of, you know, giving somebody else this, you know, iconic number. I think they handled it well. Uh, I, I thought she was a charming enough uh, character. Uh, I think that there's a, a sense, and maybe this is just me trying to look for evidence of reworks and reshoots. There's a little bit of a sense that she's a little too disconnected from the action at the end, um, where it feels almost like her scenes were added uh, in some fashion. That may not be the case, but it just it it didn't mesh as well as I would have liked it to. Um, I think also that, and this speaks to what I was talking about earlier with, you know, using too many characters to get to a certain point. I think you could have collapsed a whole thing to have it be that who he meets in Cuba and he works with, who's like, oh, I'm only three weeks on the job. And he finds out that she's fantastic and they get through the Cuba thing. And then all of a sudden he goes back to M and you find out, oh, you're the new 007. And that way you've instantly established that she's extremely competent, that she's as good as he is, that she's got. And so you could have cu- you could have compressed that whole storyline down instead of having them act adversarially. Um, and I think also it, it's unfortunate that um, the, the time with lighter and the fact that they have them acting adversarially, I think puts her a little more at and this is going to be a really clumsy way to put it a little more at arm's length from Bond at the start than I would have liked. I would have liked her paired closer with him from the get-go. Uh, just, and he doesn't need to know she's 007. She doesn't need to introduce herself as 007 right in the beginning. But something where it just, it, it needed to just compress a little bit and bring them together faster um, so that they could have had more of that interplay because I, I do think that, that, uh, you know, she and Craig have legitimate good on-screen chemistry when they're talking and they're going back and forth. And so I think that's that's just one of those things where I, I would have enjoyed enjoyed it a little bit more if they had found a way to make her just feel a little bit more a part of everything, um, you know, and a little bit more important from the start for the action that's happening on screen. Those are good points. I, I felt that as well as, you know, it didn't feel like she was as involved in the story after her and Bond's initial confrontations. Um, I think that once, you know, you start to get toward the last third of the movie that she's really just feels like a, a sidekick um, and doesn't get as much involvement. Um, but I think that it was an interesting idea I did definitely um, tell my friend um, that went to see it with me initially afterward that I wasn't sure how I felt about it because I was worried coming into this knowing it was Craig's last film, the direction that they would be going after this 
and possibly, you know, who they would replace him with and things like that. And so then also the way that they initially bring in her character in this movie with them being so um, headbutting, it made me really uncomfortable because I was worried it, it kind of felt initially like someone who is not a fan of Bond wanting to replace him and also be kind of in your face about it. So it felt almost disrespectful to me initially of the way that they brought that character in. But I do like the way that they then had her character grow and um, to see how the two of them are different and alike. And then also to have her eventually get to know him and realize that he's not just some jerk that was her predecessor and that she's got to prove that she's better than. And I like that they had her then ask for Bond to be reinstated with the original number 007 again. Um, So those things made me feel better about it and less like it was a disrespect to Bond as a character. Um, But yeah, I I think that they could have done a little bit more with her. And, um, And the actress was great. You know, I think that she she reminded me a lot of the way that um, Grace Jones performed in her movie of Bond. And um, she was very great with like the action sequences and the plane scene I loved. Um, but, yeah, I think they could have done a little bit more with her. It's really interesting because I think your your idea has some merit, John, although I would never have given up you know having Ana de Armas in in Cuba as Paloma I that scene yeah, was so was much great. fun with her and that but, so. but that's but that's the problem right the part of the problem is that she is so charismatic and mm-hmm. such a great right. screen presence in that sequence that when she exits the movie Mm-hmm. Sure, I'm a little I, deflated I because I'm like, yeah. oh, I want more, more of her. Of her. Right. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, I've got her yeah. pop figure on my. Then <laughs> it goes. No, I, I just, um, I thought the character yeah. was so well yep. done, so yep. such good on screen presence. It, it just, it, it mm-hmm. was, and she was like, okay, bye. I was like, oh, oh, yeah, all right. I, no, I, I, and I think, yeah, I, I totally see that tension. I guess I, it's nice that you leave characters and you're like, oh, I want more of that character instead of less. So that's a good thing. Um, Christy, I, I like what you were saying though there because I, I do think intentionally they start Nomi out as the character who is basically trying to prove she deserves the number 007 because everybody knows James Bond, right? Like, he is a legend, and therefore she is trying to say to him and to everyone, I deserve this number. And I think what ends up being really beautiful about the whole sequence of the movie and the arc for her as a character, which is is that Bond is a different person now. And so it what starts off as a pissing contest between them, he's the first one to break, to say here's some information that can help you. And then she, you know, tells M actually, you know, it was your, my predecessor gave you like, and part of that is I think, you know, for bond, this is, this is personal. This is not just business anymore because of the life that he has 
lived, the choices he's made has created some very personal stakes in what's happening here. And, and so he's willing to let go of those things that before a character like him himself would not have given up. You know, he would have mm-hmm. done a pissing contest all all day, but he's not into that. And I think what this does, as opposed to saying anybody can be 007, to me, this reinforces the idea that there's only one 007, and that's James Bond. And regardless of who's playing him, you can't just give anybody else this number and and they be that number, because 007 is James Bond and James Bond is 007. There's there's no two ways about it. And 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 what I liked about it is that in the in by the end of the movie, it's a really great tribute to the fact that this character is this character, you know, like and 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 so in in many ways her character many reinforces that idea. You know, there's only one 007 and it's James Bond. And I really appreciated that. And I liked uh, her in the role. I thought she was very fun. Like, John, you mentioned the fact that her, Lashana Lynch and Daniel Craig have some great chemistry, I think, on screen. They had, I think that was really good. Um, And, you know, I think what's interesting about it is I'm kind of left with a character that I would love to spend some more time with, you know, uh, in the same way that where Goldeneye gave us Sean Bean's 006, right? And them working mm-hmm. together and how fun that was at the the beginning of that movie. And then, of course, you know, he turns out to be the bad guy and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, like we very rarely see other double O's uh, in the first place. And so uh, it just kind of showed me the legitimacy of maybe showing more double O's in the, in the future, you know, like, you know, bond obviously is double O seven. So there's gotta be six others before him. Um, and there's gotta be probably a few others after him. So in number wise, so why not utilize them more often? You, like you, me. Well, I mean, you, yeah. you don't think that, uh, <laughs> double yeah, O nine, no, but like, you, you don't think that Sorry. they get together like at least an annual potluck. And, you know, so like yeah. the double O's are there, but then you have like O ten 10 through O nineteen, 19 and they're all like their own crew and they have different baseball or softball teams and stuff like that. I mean, this is a whole possibility we yeah. have for a series. No, I mean, they're just trying to one up each other with the McAllen yeah. age yeah. that they bring, you know? So, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. no, the double O's are concerned with Spectre and then the, you know, O ten 10 through O nineteen, 19, they're concerned with some other massive organization <laughs> and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it turns into like a big competition and it's like, Oh, you still can't take care of Smurfs. Huh? Ah, uh, yeah. yes. Oh gosh. I did want to say, by the way, um, the one thing that I thought was having, um, Naomi Harris as money penny. I was so glad she was back, but if there was anybody that was going to be more of a partner up with bond, I wish that she as an actress got to play the role of the new 007 mm. in that part. Cause I, I, but then I'm like, well, I mean, she's already been cast as money penny though. And she does such a great job with that. And money penny is her own thing. Um, so I don't want to take away from that either. 
yeah. Did you, no, you ever I, think well, that? Well, I no, I, I think you hit on something. It would have been a bridge too far to have her suddenly say, "Oh, well, I tried to go in for the service because I've been going for it for so long. So now, Money Punny is a double O agent." It's like, yeah, that would have been that would have been a little bit far to yeah, take no. it. Um, but I, you know, uh, I just love that yeah. actress now, and I'm like, no, I mean, man, having she's her and Ben Winchell back as Q was great, though, and you know, getting to see Q's place and like getting to spend a little bit more time mm-hmm. with the the double O family, you know, was was enjoyable, and you know, um, and that's one of those things where. You know, I don't know, maybe you could cut some of those scenes or whatever, but I, I think with this being Craig's last movie, it's one of those places where they were were, were being indulgent. Those are definitely the scenes, yeah. uh, I think, that you can sense uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's fingerprints all over them, because they very much play like, episode, like parts of episodes of uh, Killing Eve, and that's unfortunate, because Killing Eve is cute, but it's not weighty if that makes sense um and so mm-hmm. i well i understand and respect liking those scenes uh and i didn't dislike them per se those were sort of those were the sort of things that i would not have added and those were the sort sure. of things i would yep. have compressed and cut out in order to get this yeah. closer to two hours and 20 minutes instead of two hours and was it 43 minutes or something like that mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. So uh, we should definitely talk about Bond and Madeline. I mean, they're the heart of this film. And, you know, um, their love story continues from Spectre. And and obviously their love story now includes the fact that Bond has a kid, <laughs> Mathilde. Uh, and, you know, it creates his sacrifice. And I think, you know, when we talk about the legacy of, of Craig, you know, with his bond and, and five movies from raw killer to a man in love and a father. I mean, do you, would you have ever in your wildest imagination thought in, in, in casino Royale, they're going to take bond from being a character who has been what he's always been to being a guy. You could see him being a dad and, and actually wanting that. Like I would have never expected that. And I feel like they, successfully made that work and i mean i their love story and everything that happens to them in this film i mean had me choking up at the end when you know he's standing there and they're talking and you know it goes to white because he's gone and it 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 was an interesting reversal obviously from um on her majesty's secret service and to me, it works like gangbusters. Them. That was one thing I, I just wanted to say, Matt. I wasn't sure how you would feel about it because I know that you love the Tr- Tracy story um, and on Her Majesty's Secret Service and that this was more leaning into um, him and Vesper Lind and now having Madeline. So I didn't know how you would feel about that. Yeah, I and I think it... I would be annoyed if they were still trying, if they were trying to connect his bond as being the same character as that, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not. And therefore, uh, you know, just like no one's Batman, I don't have any interest. I don't have any problems with any decisions that he makes in that series because it's its own thing. This is its own thing. Yeah. 
and where they go next will be its own thing apart from this. So, uh, you know, this was all about completing the arc for Craig's Bond. And so Bond and Madeline together, I mean, I loved her Inspector. And then the fact that I knew she was going to come back in this and they, they really flush out that whole story arc for them, I thought was phenomenal. And, and to me, I could not have been, I guess, honestly happier with the fact that they pushed the boundaries with this character and they did it in a way that I think they took their time enough with it in this film so that I think they earned it. You know, they earned everything they did with this these two characters together, and it worked. Yeah, I, I mean, the ending, It's uh, this is the thing, is uh, I'm going to get blubbery if a guy with a daughter has to sacrifice his life. You know, I'm sitting there with my middle child, right? Like, that's immediately going to hit a chord, um, especially when, when it's a daughter sort of thing. So that that's immediately going to get me a little choked up. Um and I did think it was uh, it was bold and different to actually kill him. How many times have we seen Bond get out of it at the end? And this is the first time Bond has died. And it's like, wow, okay, that is really, really different. And it does bring into focus how much the character means to you. You're like, oh mm-hmm. wow, this is yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, and I'll I'll straight up say that. Um, and I know this is going to be a controversial comment. But like when Luke Skywalker dies at the end of The Last Jedi, I was confused because I was like, not confused, but like my emotions were mixed up because it was like, oh, I love Luke, but I didn't, I don't know, this, I didn't really love him in this movie sort of thing. And so you're playing on emotions that existed outside of this, whereas in this, even as in a self-contained story, Bond's death works divorced from the previous 24 films this is simply a guy who's found out he had a daughter and he's giving everything up because he can't imagine life without her and it's like okay i i get that i understand it Mm. um yeah and so you know it is moving at the end uh it and it is different i think it puts us all in the position though because it is the first time bond has died for us to wonder do, is this just a big reset button this is the first mm-hmm. time we've oh, had sure. that self-contained bond right. arc and it's like so does this mean everything resets to the beginning does this mean that we're going in a completely different direction are we never to speak of james bond again is it all now just the spy franchise sort of thing and it's like uh, so I'm really curious coming out of this mm-hmm. where we end up. Where are we going to go after this? I mean, part of me says, okay, great. We're going to go back and we're going to hit the reset button. We're going to go all the way back to the 60s and we're going to make Bond a period piece and put this character, divorce him from any modern controversies about how the character behaves and put him back in a bygone era so that people are a little more forgiving of the type of person he is. And at the same time, mm-hmm. give sort of like a an alternate history scenario where we see that he made it possible even to be alive at this point to see these stories. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm interested. I'm intrigued. Yeah, you raised the best point. I think by the end of this movie, I felt the same way. It it left me both excited, but also concerned about what now. Um because it's the first time Bond has died, and um, that's an uneasy feeling 
especially when you've watched every single Bond movie and watched them all multiple times, you know that Bond gets away. <laughs> so seeing him not get away, you're like, oh no, mm-hmm. <laughs> now what? Yeah. Um, but I think that it was a fitting conclusion to Craig's arc. Um, I think that the, it was so emotional because of the way that they showed Madeline's story and the deep feeling that he and Madeline have for each other and then having a child. For me, the most gut-wrenching moment is when he is in the pool with Safin and finds out that he's been poisoned. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, all that's happened to me is everything being taken from me over and over and over and over again. And now this is taken from me too. Like he's just completely wounded as much mentally as he is physically in that moment and it's like you just feel all of that weight in him um and craig does that so well he's such a good dramatic actor in that sense um so i I thought it was a really great way to do it but also hard hard as well i i really like the way that you put that christy and i i think I can't say enough about the performances for Sadu and Craig in this film together. I think they do a great job. Um, just so good. I mean, you know, I, there's so many scenes I love with her, and part of it I love with her is that, you know, I, you talked about the tropes at the beginning. Like, there, she's not a damsel in distress. She rescues herself many a times in this film, which is really cool. Um, and, and she has... And, mm-hmm. and part of that is, like, you know, she's fighting for her child, right? You know, and, and John, you being a father, like, bringing that up, that idea, you know, she's... F- There's something that happens to you when you're a parent that that other people don't understand what you do for your child, you know? And when they're when they're in danger... So I thought all of that was great, and and yeah, I, Christy, the way you put that with with him and and Craig, a bond of, of what he's giving up, but he has to make sure the world is safe for what he leaves behind, and mm-hmm. and what he leaves behind is a woman that he loves ridiculously. And a child, he will always, you know, he would always wish that he would know, um, but that he'll leave the world a little bit safer for her to grow up in. And I think allowing this character to have these bonds of the heart that are more than just queen and country, that it's so much more personal. It's all of that, right? Like he's. His his little family is a representation of all of the families of the world that he's trying to save. And I think that that just brings to home, you know, the reason that, again, we really love this character who, you know, for all the ridiculous adventures he's had, that's his goal is to make sure that, that you can have your family, right? And that's why we respond to the character. And I think, like you said, John, the reason that we then also feel something so much when this character finally dies you know and um and in many ways it's very similar I, I, the only thing i can think of is is you know the dark knight rises you know where bruce wayne gives up being batman so he could go be happy with you know 
uh, Catwoman, <laughs> Selena Kyle. He's going to go start a whole new life. He's going to give up the thing that you've never seen him give up. You know, the, f- for Batman, that was more than dying. You know, for Bond, honestly, it's 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 that he can't cheat death anymore. And and mm-hmm. so, um, but that he wouldn't want to because honestly, dying is even better for him than living. Because living would mean he would never be with the person he loves the most. And the child he would never right. know because he would never be able to be with them. And so, you know, I, I just, uh, yeah, it's so emotional, so well done. And I think it's so well earned. And, and it makes this the most, I mean, it, it makes this the most incredible run for Bond. So, um. Okay, I, I, I want to talk to you guys about the action of the film because I, I think, um, you know, obviously every Bond movie, it, it's an action movie. You know, we've got the Great Chase in Italy. We've got the Cuba sequence. We've got the Norway sequence. Uh, and then we have what happens there at the end on, on Poison Island. Um, and anything, any favorites there? Anything really stand out to you that you guys, you know, that you really liked? Was there anything you didn't like in, in the action sequences that they created for this movie? No. I, I thought the action sequences were all great. I, I, but I, again, like I was talking about earlier, I, the Cuba sequence absolutely stands out to me. I just thought it was, it, it was the energy of 1960s Bond with modern uh, technology and sensibilities applied to it. And I, I just thought it, it, I think that entire sequence sings. It's just absolutely beautifully put together from the way it's shot to the way it's edited. Absolutely flawless. Um, uh, you know, the, the Norway stuff is, is very good. Um, and the car chase through Italy is a lot of fun. Uh, and like I said, that I, I can't get enough of that stuff. That that final action sequence where he's going through the lair and he gets up to the the staircase. I love that really intricately designed stuff. Uh, so the action sequences wouldn't take a thing from there. I I, th- I honestly think that uh, everybody involved in in staging those, in shooting those, in being in those should take a bow because they did a great job. I'm with you on that, and I mean, hey also a thing for Bond fans. It's always about the car, <laughs> right? So, you know, you had to have an Aston Martin yep. back. And uh, I saw actually the stunt guy was calling it um, Donuts in the Square <laughs> to describe that one scene in Italy. And I love that. So I I, um, I really, that was my favorite action sequence was getting to see them using both a car and motorcycles to go up and down all through this city with multiple levels where it's all stone. Um, And I'm worried the whole time about how the stunt people are doing this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And they said, you know, they had to look at wind direction and speed. Um, It had to be on sunny days so that the rain didn't make things slicker. Like it was really complicated to do those scenes. So I love it. I was reading the making of book and they literally poured Coke, like Coca-Cola on the streets Uh and then let it dry in the sun. So it was stickier for the tires. Uh, Yeah. So, um, no, I mean, I think you're got you all. 
I was blown away by the chase sequence in Italy and, and really getting to see the DB5, you know, in all its glory, do some really cool things. You know, that car has always obviously been a great car for uh, James Bond and so iconic. So I love that. I mean, John, your pontification about Cuba is so on target. Like, that is the sequence you can kind of lift from this entire movie and just watch that over and over again. And part of that has to do with Anna de Armas. You know, I, I think Christy, um, as we kind of talked about before, is some of the tropes that they might have gotten rid of. One of the things I love that they did is that they were not afraid to, like, Bond looks great in the tux. She looks sexy in this, the, the, the dress that she's wearing, you know? And they... Mm-hmm. they're in cuba right you you play that up like a little bit and 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 the scene is so much fun and it's so well done i just i love it i think i really appreciated that they did a car chase sequence like they the one they did in norway because we've not seen that an off-roading ch- chase sequence like that in bond before and so mm-hmm. it was a new f- interesting way to add something to the bond lexicon um you know doing a, a chase sequence like that and 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 just watching you know bond also at that point like this is this is also different because it's the first time he's ever had cargo you know like yeah people he's trying to protect in the child. car with him you know he's not just thinking about himself you know it's so the psychology it's even different and and then you know, everything on Poison Island, like you said, John, in that stairway sequence, it's everything you expect from a modern action film. And I know a friend of ours doesn't like this, but I'm sorry. When he kills the guy with his watch and the electromagnetic pulse, I thought that was a perfect way of, you know, having a Bond gadget that makes sense. It's not too out there. And it, you know, I mean, it blew his mind. So... I, yeah and then the yeah, joke exactly <laughs> yeah I, so I, that, that was I, I know it's i know good. it's cheesy but i i appreciated it i also like the scene in that whole um part where he has a bomb little you know like a um oh what do you call it grenade oh, thrown yeah, down yeah. the tunnel at him and then he throws it back up and then they throw like four and he's like no no yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it backfired yeah. literally um, I did want to add too when he initially gets out of the vehicle in the forest in Norway and starts to like go all stealth mode. I thought to myself, "Oh, he's pulling a Rambo." Ooh, I thought that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought that too. <laughs> you know pull. what I thought Good of pull. is that I want no time to die. The game like Goldeneye because there are so many great levels to play in this movie. Like yeah. I just I think it would be great. Um, so obviously we're bringing it to a close and. Craig is gone. There's some interesting things that then happen in this movie because that, I mean, we have the death of Felix, the death of Blofeld, the death of Spectre. uh, And, you know, we got to see some fun things like the Aston Martin V8 from uh, Living Daylights was back, which, oh, what a beautiful car. Whew, man. Next to the DB5, that may be the Bond car I want the most. Uh, And so what did you guys think of those things? Did they work for you? Did they feel organic to the movie? I mean, did you cry when Felix died? No, I didn't cry when Felix died. Uh, But I do think that Felix dying probably was... uh, It was a well-done moment where it allowed me to reset my expectations 
because once I saw that they were willing to kill Felix Leiter, my brain immediately reset and said, oh, okay, everybody's fair game in this. And I have a, a friend that I go back and forth with about the deaths of main characters where he hates it. And I've always said it's important to do because you then believe that the main character is in danger. And so mm-hmm. Felix dying gave a sense of danger to Bond. I immediately knew, okay, everybody's on the table. They're not they're not going to spare anybody if the story calls for them to eat it. And so there you go. And you know, I've seen the argument also from the other side with this movie in particular that it seems like sort of like you were saying earlier, John, like everything is a hard reset here with killing Felix, killing Blofeld, killing Bond. Now what kind of thing? But I I think it's more about how you look at it. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that it feels like it was good timing um, and made sense with the story arc that we've had with Craig for um, Felix and for Blofeld to be killed off. But also it was cool to just even have Blofeld brought back. You know, for for this era of Bond, that was different. Um, and having Christoph Waltz play him, oh, I love him. Let, let me ask this question. Let, let's We all know that Bond is going to come back in one form or another, whether it's a streaming series or a reboot or, or what have you. If this were the last Bond movie, though, if they come out and they say, you know what, it's been the better part of a century, and it has been six decades with Mm -hmm. this character this character has been on screen longer than i've been alive if they came out and they said you know what honestly we're out of the james bond business we're just doing something else is this a fitting end to all of it would you feel satisfied with this as the last bond movie ever made before they just shuttered the franchise and said we're done yes not as much as i would have with Maybe Skyfall being the last one, because I felt like that would be really going out on a high note. But you can't always go out on a high note. <laughs> Fair enough. What about you, Matt? I, yeah. Uh, my wife and I were talking about that, you know, as we left the theater. And uh, I absolutely think this is uh, honestly a great end um, to the series. And, and mainly because of the way that the, the character here had a completely full arc. Um, uh, from 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 killer to father, uh, and it is something that had never happened before. And you know how they reimagine the character and where they go next, I is difficult. I think. Um, and if they're smart, you know, I, I think what they do is they wipe the slate clean, uh, and they don't bring any of the previous actors back, and they just start over. Uh, and they basically just drop you in Bond as normal, you know, and mm-hmm. go from there and kind of do the anthology stuff again. Because I, I don't think you can, you can't do, you don't need another origin story because you don't need that again. Um, this character is enough in the cultural zeitgeist that you can just create, uh, you know, another story for him. But I, I think where you go from here and how you bring Craig to a close is that you allow all of that what he represented and everybody that was in his films to 
stay there and you find a new M, you find a new Money Penny, you find a new Felix Leiter, you find, you know, you find all of those characters new again. Yeah, you, you because all of that feels like Craig's. You know, because Craig's, I mean, I know M came from the Brosden era and she was the only holdover. But I don't think you can do that with the rest of these characters because they belong to Craig and his MI6 family. And it just doesn't work Mm -hmm. because it's, and especially since he's dead, you know, Felix is dead. He's dead. You know, like it doesn't really work to move forward with, with, with anyone who's been associated with this, um, moving forward. So yeah, I think this is a really fitting end. And if I, I'll be honest. I think if they were smart, they would hang up their Walter PPK and just be done with it. Uh, mm. it because I don't, I don't know where you go from here to reinvent the character or make it better or you know or I just I don't know what you do. I mean, you it feels like after twenty five films in sixty years, you've done everything. So well, I don't know. The one. The one thing I will say that excites me about possible future Bond films is thinking about who I would choose to play the next Bond. Um, And I got to say, as soon as I heard it, I was like, yes, I'm on board with this. This is the only person I think is good enough to be next. Let's give Idris Elba his Bond series. I, I think it would be interesting if you did Bond as a true anthology series and had a different Bond every movie. I don't I don't yeah, know if you can get too. the traction for it. That might be a straight to streaming sort of thing. Um, the mm-hmm. one thing I want to make sure I would want to make sure of is that Bond remains uh, British, <laughs> you know, like yeah, uh, or or part of the UK, I should say, or you know, whatever, uh, because. Um, I don't want an American Bond, you know, and I don't want to. No, uh, like, that's part of its allure, right. I, you know. But at the same time, I like I, I really have a hard time thinking that this is anything other than the end for Bond to say this is it. Mm-hmm. Because why else would you kill the character at this point? You're making a declaration at this point that this is it. Mm-hmm. This is the end of Bond as we have enjoyed and loved him. He now belongs to the past. And in a way, that's depressing because it's like, oh, no, I've, I've seen all of these movies and I love this character. And I but at the same time, I understand that each one belongs to an era. And given the fact that Craig's entire run as Bond has grappled with the idea of is the time of the personal spy done i mean our you know our government thanks to different laws and such that are out there literally literally collects all of the metadata on everything that i've ever done you've ever done anybody has ever done on the internet james bond can't Mm -hmm. keep up with that and i know specter dealt with that in a little clumsily but like is is the era of this type of spy done? Is it is it Q's story now? Where, you know, the, the guy with the horn rim glasses sitting there hacking on a computer, tracking people down that way. Like, you know, and it's it's um I don't know. 
at the end of this, I wonder, is it, is, is it, is it just the end? So, Yeah, I don't think it'll be the end, especially since the movie did say James Bond will return at the end. Um, and they've already mentioned that they won't be choosing another Bond uh, till next year. Um, they they didn't want to get in the way of, you know, Craig having his time and, and allowing this film to have, they didn't want to take anything away from that, which I think is brilliant. I mean, don't even have those discussions yeah. in, until, you know, this is basically, you know, ready for home video. Uh, I said video as if that's a thing anymore, but uh, home streaming. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Um, which leads me to an interesting question because we haven't talked about the fact that Hans Zimmer does the score here. Billie Eilish has the song No Time to Die. Um, how did that work for you guys? Especially as, is this the last Bond? Was it, a, was it a good score? Was it a good song? So I gotta say, I was really looking to see how they were going to do the intro um, with, you know, the, the imagery and stuff, how they always do the opening titles for every Bond movie. Um, and then also what, they were going to have as the song and who was going to sing it because I also think having Adele doing Skyfall was freaking brilliant. Um, and it's so, you know, moody and um, beautiful at the same time. So I was really curious to see how they were going to do this. And I think having Billie Eilish do it was good. I think that she has a similar kind of styling as Adele did. And I think that they did well with, how they did the intro again to pay homage to all of the bonds that came before, but also having it be its own thing. Um, it was beautiful. And I, and I thought the score was beautiful. I think that bringing in Zimmer was a good choice. Um, they previously had someone else who also left due to creative differences. Um, so I'm glad that we ended up with Zimmer on this. Uh, I definitely liked Billie Eilish's opening song more than I liked Sam Smith's. Um, yes yeah and i definitely liked it better than madonna's i can tell you that um but i think that uh, this is the the opening song is definitely one where they have fallen prey to uh, trying to recapture something uh where adele was uh, skyfall's opening music was lightning in a bottle it was it was unexpected. Mm -hmm. It was, oh my gosh, what just happened there? And I think they've been chasing it ever since. And so yeah, I, I can agree with that. I didn't dislike Billie Eilish's song, but I didn't love it. I thought it was fine. I thought it fit. And that's okay. Um, again, it's, <laughs> it's not Madonna, thank God. And it's not Sam Smith. Um, but, you know, it's so it, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, in terms of score, mm -hmm. you know, there was one point and it almost seems like a joke at this point where uh, I, I'm listening and I'm like, oh, I wonder who did the score. And then the drums kicked in. And I was like, this really sounds like Hans Zimmer or some or one of his friends. And then it was like music by Hans Zimmer. I was like, yeah, OK, pegged it. Got it. Mm -hmm. uh, I I like the opening song by Billy. I think it's good. Um, I think, John, you really nailed that where you mentioned that they've been, ch I think they have been chasing Adele uh, and that idea of a, of her song um, and they've been trying to pull that back. 
again, I, I definitely like it better than I did like Sam Smith's. And, and it works really well for the film. The lyrics for it actually work really well for the film. So that was good. Uh, you know, I, I liked Hans Zimmer's score here. And partly because Hans and his creative team go with a lot of allusions to old Bond scores specifically from on her majesty's secret service i mean they obviously use the song all the time in the world there uh and that they actually use some of the Mm -hmm. theme music from that as well here but they also use some of the thematic elements from all of craig's movies um and so and work that into the score and the score was fun and it sounds very james bond i mean james bond scores have a sound to them when they're done right and I think it was done well here. So I think all in all, I have nothing to complain about. I've really enjoyed actually listening to the score. It's a lot of fun. And again, anytime you want to pull music from John Barry's Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, you, you can't go wrong because it's an incredible Bond score in and of itself. So, um, well... It's been a monster episode, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, I, t- talking about a James Bond movie, uh, and especially one of this magnitude, means it's going to be a longer episode. So, appreciate everybody sticking with us, and I've got to get to the important question, which is, what would you rate Daniel Craig's final James Bond movie, No Time to Die? Okay, f- f- first John? and foremost, I, I want to get out here, and I was talking with somebody uh, about this at work. Where I said, okay, context matters. So in terms of last James Bond movie, I look at them. And I say, is it better than Live and Let Die? By a country mile. Is it better than License to Kill? Absolutely. Is it better than whatever the hell Pierce Brosnan's was? Yep, sure is. Is it better than... Um, Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds yes. Forever. Yeah, it is. Hey. It's... Oh, now you stop that. Scamp. Um <laughs> And then, but then there's like a weird push on on Her Majesty's Secret Service because it's both the first and the last movie. So yeah. it's sort of like okay. <laughs> um, in terms of last movie done by a an actor playing Bond, I think it's the best one. I think it's the best send off of all of them. And so, if I were to make the James, the final James Bond collection, this is number one. So there you go. Um, but uh, as a film fan, uh, I know I'll rewatch it to see whether this stays pat, goes up, goes down. But uh, as I came out, I gave it a three and a half out of five. That's where I stand. Okay. I have to say I did a lot of digesting, as I call it, when I'm like mulling things over, you know. Um, I was really worried about how they were going to handle the end of Craig's arc. I've especially, like I said, because I loved Skyfall so much and um, Casino Royale second, but all of Craig's movies were good. Um, And then also just bringing in some things from all the other Bond films, then seeing how they were going to wrap this up and where you go from here. um, I, I still have a lot of questions and I think that some things could have been handled a little better in this movie. Um, but ultimately, I still enjoyed it. It had a lot of things I didn't expect in a good way. And I, I would definitely watch it again. I actually would love to go back and see it again with my friend Erica that I went to see it with. So we could, you know, compare and contrast first viewing to subsequent. But 
ultimately I come down at uh, three and a half out of five, two, mm, wow. because it's just not as as high on the list for me as Skyfall and as Casino Royale. Um, although it had a lot of things that I really enjoyed. Um, I think that the editing could have been a little tighter and I, I wanted more from the possible new 007. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll end up changing my mind later and put it at a four, but I don't want to undersell that I did really love a lot of this. Well, you're both wrong. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 interesting, and I know, um, you know, I've I've seen even in just on Letterbox from people I follow and and know whatever you know, it's been anywhere from like three and a half to five stars, right? So it, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. on the higher end of films in general, and. Like you said, John, there's only George Lazenby has a better send off just because he only has one film. And that's just because that's my favorite James Bond movie. So, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, when it comes to anybody else leaving the the run, nobody's done it better. You're welcome. Uh, and I really like this movie. Uh, I've seen it a few times now already. Three, I think. Yeah. And... I will see it again, and I would give it a four and a half. It's not perfect. Um, it's not a five-star James Bond movie, but I love it. I absolutely love it. And and part of that, I think, is just there's so much emotion to it. And I, mm-hmm. I don't... There's no other Bond movie other than Honor Majesty's Secret Service where there's been this much emotion. And so... I I cannot say enough for how special I think that is, um, and you know it, it's um it's difficult because you know like you know John was saying this is a character to which I love you know and and I love this series and so where they go next is really interesting but and I have no idea but I'm just very excited. So with all that said, um. We're going to forgo recommendations this week, but it sounds like everybody would recommend that people go see No Time to Die in the theaters. Man, I had a recommendation yeah. ready. You do this to me. This is bogus. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, the show had been so long, I just didn't want... But we'll do recommendations because John Mills wants to do recommendations, so by goodness, we will do it. John, what's your recommendation for everybody this week? It's spooky season, and I happen to watch it for House Lights over on the Nerd Party Network, but... I think people should, especially if they have not seen it, give a shot to Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Gary Oldman as Dracula from 1992. It's crazy. It's Coppola Unchained. It is an insane uh, callback to old style filmmaking. I think it's a lot of fun. It's a little weird, um, but I definitely think people should check it out. So there you go. Yeah. Nice. And I actually have mine ready Ooh. too. Not always the common thing for me, but I know. Um, I actually really want to recommend another podcast I was checking out, um, which sounds funny to recommend a podcast on a podcast. But anyway, it's called The New Day Feel the Power. And it's, if anyone's familiar with WWE wrestling, it's inspired by uh, the three guys, Kofi, 
Xavier Woods and Big E, who came together to form a group called The New Day that's part of their wrestling characters. But now they've become such close friends that they call each other brothers and uh, have made this podcast to just talk about stuff that they enjoy and to rib on each other. And it's so funny. I laugh all the time and I, I keep telling my husband he needs to listen to it. And the more I tell him, the more he is deciding to be stubborn, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I highly recommend checking out the New Day podcast. You know, I know people might consider this a cop out, but I'm going to encourage you go to the theater and watch this movie. It's totally worth it. Like, if you've listened to this and you haven't gone and seen it, go. It's so much fun. I mean, I had such a great time Spoilers in the theater watching it with a crowd. Like, it was, and it's been a while since the theater has been this full, which was fun. Mm -hmm. Um, And people were, like, cheering, and some people were sobbing, and at the end of the movie, like, it was great. It's it's one of those things. Like it's the communal experience and the joy of going to the cinema and experience a film together. And I mean, we've got great movies coming out throughout the rest of the year with like Dune and hopefully Ghostbusters Afterlife will be fun. And we've got some Marvel movies yeah. coming out. And I mean, like you know, it, there, there's some other movies like uh, The Last Duel coming out by Ridley Scott. I mean. It, great stuff you know so go go support a theater you know and uh go enjoy yourself at the movies uh this fall and so that's my recommendation but john uh you know it's been a blast as always to have you here and and i you know i know you're a long time bond fan you know you guys had walked through some of the Bond movies together over on um your podcast words with nerds as well so i mean I, I know how much this character means to you so thanks for being here and where can you know everybody find you if they want to catch up with you and talk to you how you should have rated this higher <laughs> well golly you can find me over as kessel junkie on your social network of choice uh letterbox is where i have the most fun try to be a little scamp over there and uh you can find me over on the nerd party network co-hosting a show called house lights where we go through the work of filmmakers either the entire body of work or thematically or by you know specific decade or or whatever other combination that we have and also co-hosting a show called aggressive negotiations with you matt uh where we uh talk about star wars from you know i think some pretty unique angles where we uh dig into the weird stuff but uh christy where else can people find you? Oh, of course, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bespin Bell, usually more active on the Instagram side of things, but also on Facebook in the Babel Conference. And when I'm not here with Matt, I also do a show called Sabres and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And we are indeed going to talk about Labyrinth this week oh no so i hope everybody will check that out i'm gonna give my before and after because both of us have never seen labyrinth oh before. i can't wait to hear so, that i really can't wait to hear yeah. that <laughs> so far all i know is david bowie oh 
That's all you need to know going into that movie. Trust me. <laughs> a lot of yeah. David Bowie is what yeah. I've heard. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, you could find me, of course, all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 So follow me there. I would love to talk to you about No Time to Die or anything else. Of course, uh, you can find uh, here in the 602 Club feed, Snyder Cuts, talking about uh, everything that Zack Snyder directed with John Mills, who's on this show, uh, as well as assembling avengers which has started as we're making our way through all of the marvel movies together kind of checking them out again and at minus hype and you know we uh we just uh, got to the incredible hulk and coming out this week you'll have uh iron man 2 so it's been really fun revisiting phase one uh you can also find me doing literary treks the orb and Warp 5 here on the network. Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. The Orbs about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then Warp 5, Chris Jones and I are walking through all of the episodes of Enterprise in celebration of its 20th anniversary. And then, of course, you can find me over in the Nerd Party Network, not just on Aggressive Negotiations, also doing... Uh, and a f- it's a finished podcast with Drea Kaufman. It was called Owl Post. And we walked through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. And there's no time to die, you hear? (laughs) ¶¶